Paradigms, Insights into Relationships and You, hosted by Toby Jenkins, a marriage and family therapist associate serving Central Kentucky. Each week, Toby will bring you a show with a topic related to mental health, relationships, or self-improvement. The name of the show, Paradigms, comes from that moment in the therapy process when a profound shift in perspective happens for a client, an epiphany sometimes accompanied by physical reaction that leads them to look at things differently and make significant steps towards improving and enriching their lives. You are listening to Paradigm Insights into Relationships and You. I'm your host, Toby Jenkins, and today... We're talking about a marriage and family therapy for addiction. And so um, with addiction, there's a traditional path of recovery and usually involves Suboxone and other forms of support. But one of the, uh, at least from my perspective, one of the more important things that uh, people can do in terms of getting past addiction is uh, marriage and family therapy, bringing in as much of their family network or system as possible. So uh, so in full transparency, my guests today are actually uh, clients of mine. We've been working together for about a year, a year and a half. And, a a half. and so I've mentioned before, I'm not necessarily an addiction specialist. Doing this kind of work uh, has a definite role in recovery alongside traditional ways of doing uh, addiction addiction work. So um, we're not going to use the real names of my clients to protect their identity. Uh, they will go by Amy and Nate today. Um, and this is not a therapy session, so to speak, but uh, Amy and Nate have a been on a journey together through addiction and their story is um, evolving and they're improving and it's worth sharing and ultimately if we can help someone else find a marriage and family therapist to help with uh, addiction then uh, our time would be well worth it so amy and nate welcome to the show and um i guess we'll start with you nate you have battled addiction for a number of, well i shouldn't tell your story <laughs> Welcome to the show, and why don't we start with uh, your battle with addiction over the years? Well, it started when I was in my early 20s. Um, I watched it as a kid, so I just kind of thought it was the natural thing to do. Uh -huh. uh, I got an injury, got prescribed pain pills, and it just kind of spiraled out of control. So what, what, what was your injury? I had a, a neck injury and a back injury due to a couple of different things. I had a motorcycle accident and then I got beat up by a couple of different people and they injured my my tailbone and my lower mm. spine, my upper spine, and then a lot of different internal injuries. I When I hear addiction stories, you've just described one path of two that I typically hear. I typically hear of teenager dabbling in prescription drugs then escalating up to Oxycontin, then heroin, and you know, fill in the blank. But then the other path I hear is exactly this. An injury, surgery of some kind, uh, you get prescribed pain medication, and then it escalates. And so, now, I often hear this divide by age. <laughs> and so older people, oh, I'm not old, I'm, I'm a youthful 46. <laughs> the uh, older people I've worked with describe getting into addiction the way you describe. Well, I never touched any of the opiates or anything like that in my teenage years. I mean, I used stuff like cocaine recreationally and drank. I didn't even like smoking weed very often. Very seldom I did that, but usually in a big crowd or something. But, uh, you know, once I started doing that, there was no going back. There was no stopping. It just stayed that way for over a decade. Okay. So a decade, you progressed from the pain medication, your body healed to some degree? Yep. Then just a progression into other drugs at that yeah. point? Yeah. Caused a lot of havoc. <laughs> well, you know, tell us about some of the havoc. 
Um, it cost me every person I ever had, you know, um, destroying um, relationships and trust and bonds. And even my own brother had enough, you know, um, just even, even, which is kind of embarrassing to say, but, you know, people like to think that their children are like this sacred thing mm -hmm. and nothing comes above them, but I can promise you that not even your children matter. Oh. When you're going through something like that, you know, everything's that just doesn't matter. Your number one priority is to get high and take care of your physical dependency. Wow. So you are saying that in reference to your own children? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so do you recall, so you mentioned your brother kind of washing his hands of you. Were there, do you recall people in your life trying to intervene and help and how what yes. worked and what didn't work for you? Um, nothing worked. I manipulated everything that they tried to do for me. Wow. Uh, I just wasn't ready. I mm -hmm. mean, I didn't even realize I had a problem until I was probably 31, 32. Okay. And, and then it started clicking. Hey, you know, it took, it took one of my closest relatives to pass away before I finally realized what I was doing. Like, as embarrassing as it may seem, but... I had a uncle who was passed away on his deathbed, and um, he died in front of me. And I took his medication that he was hooked up to. Wow. And the police came in, and you know, I had to like, I didn't know what they were talking about, and I was right. able to get it out. But after all that was said and done, I'm sitting in his funeral, and, and that's, that's when I realized that that's when it hit me. Wow. You know, what, what's going on? Why, why? What would make me do that to my own family member? You yeah. Know? So I try to start recovery. I try to start uh, getting sober and probably, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 failed attempts. Uh, I tried the methadone treatment. I tried cold turkey. Um, I mean, you named it, I tried it. Uh, methadone was a horrible idea. That, that was another seven, years of well I mean I, I started maybe when I was 31 and I guess uh, I'm 40 now and it was just maybe four or five years ago that I finally got off of it mm -hmm. but uh, it set up a dependency for that and the pain medication and whatever else I was doing okay so, so I methadone had, what 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 is it and how is it uh, used in addiction recovery it fills the receptors in your brain so uh, you feel I guess the, the physical dependency part of it is taken care of, but I'm, I'm not real sure on the chemical compounds of it all, but sure. you know, it works the same way as heroin or anything like that. And once you're on a stable dose, you know, you, that stuff's not supposed to affect you as much like heroin. It's supposed to take care of stuff like cravings and all that. Um, but when you start intermixing all the other chemicals with it, mm. you have to have those as well as the methadone every day. Right. So the methadone doesn't get you high, but it squashes the cravings for getting high. But it does get you high. And anyone that will tell you that it doesn't is a, you know. Not it, being honest. That, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't have all these methadone clinics full of people. Yeah. They, why wouldn't they just take Suboxone? They, okay, they so what's the difference between Suboxone and methadone? Um, all I know is what I feel. Sure. I yeah, that's what, yeah. can't explain it to you, but I've never been high off of Suboxone. I might be a little drowsy, like Benadryl would make you drowsy or something like that, but never like a nod off, clonk out kind of high. Yeah. Um, and once you've taken it, you've taken it properly, it's just like you take an aspirin every day to take care of your headache, or mm -hmm. you take your diabetic medication or, or whatever medicines you need. It's the same concept. It does the same exact stuff for you. It's just taking care of your addiction and your cravings. But since I've been on that, I've only had um, cravings twice, and that was out of anger because of something mm -hmm. I was going through, you know, with my wife and I or my ex-wife or my children or whatever it might be, probably my mother. But it is a fantastic way, if it's done properly, to wean yourself off. But, you know, it has to be, it has to be monitored, and mm -hmm. it, it has to be done the right way. Yeah, because it can be abused the same way. Wow. So then, 
you know, you mentioned the 10 or 15 attempts to sober up. What finally stuck? Uh, my wife. Okay. She was the light at the end of the tunnel. I, uh, yeah, she, she just changed me. I don't know, I can't tell you that, uh, you know, it wasn't anything else but my wife. I okay. Mean, and then to boot, you know, I, I got to see what it was like to be sober. Um, but before her, I went down this dark path after my, my uncle passed away and I could not stay clean. Like, no matter what, I, I just, I, I thought about suicide, I thought about driving off a cliff, I thought about running away, I thought about going to Mexico, I just, I had all kinds of different things going on in my head. I tried to go to three different rehabs, and back then it's not like now, you couldn't just go in. Um, you know, it was 15000 to 40000 or whatever to, wow. to get into a place like that, depending on yeah. the facility. So, I decided that I was going to go to jail. Um, so I set, I set course my plan to get locked away so that um, I could get clean. And so I took some stuff and I told the person to press charges and that's what they did. So you purposely took stuff with the ultimate goal of get, being put in jail so then that was kind of a cold turkey. So so was there treatment in jail too, or just no. kind of just cold turkey? Just cold turkey. Wow. Just nothing, just locked away in a cell, <laughs> you know, by yourself for three three days. And then even after that, I had to be by myself in a medical pod because I was so sick for 31 days straight. Okay. Well, we're up against our first uh, commercial break. When we come back, we'll have more with Nate and Amy and uh, continue this amazing story. We'll be right back. This is Toby Jenkins, founder of Jenkins Couples and Family Therapy and host of Paradigm Insights into Relationships and You. Jenkins Couples and Family Therapy is a proud sponsor and supporter of Paradigm Insights into Relationships and You. At Jenkins Couples and Family Therapy, we work with couples, families, and individuals walking with you through life's challenges and transitions. You can find out more about Jenkins CFT and request an appointment for therapy at www.jenkinscft.com or by calling area code 859-806-0093. Do you want to help positively transform schools? Then let me, Joel Cotty, keynote speaker and facilitator of the professional learning, Ignite, hashtag love in schools, put deep passion, purpose, and joy back into your classrooms, hallways, and school events. Share my contact information with a principal or district leader near you. My phone number is 859-967-8510 and find me on Twitter and Facebook at Ignite Love PD. talk about this stuff man you know so well, it was great I yeah uh we're back you're listening to paradigm insights into relationships and you uh i'm your host toby jenkins and today my guests are amy and nate and before the break uh nate was telling us about his uh master plan to find finally get clean which involved uh purposely breaking the law to go to jail and so so that was a pretty well thought out process. And at that point, you tried a bunch of things to get clean and nothing worked. So was it the prospect of having to go cold turkey for you? Well, in the back of my mind, I always knew that jail or death was the ultimate end. Jail or death? Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, because when you get down that low, it's the only two options. Mm -hmm. I mean, after your children didn't help, your loved ones didn't help, you know, people passing away that you care about don't change anything I mean the end is either jail or death so yeah. prior to the jail thing uh, what made me decide that is I took 
I tried to sleep off my addiction. I took a bunch of Elevil, NyQuil, and uh, Seroquel, and I slept for four days. That's a lot of quills. <laughs> yes. I wanted to make sure I was knocked out. I don't remember a whole lot of it. All I do remember is that when I woke up, I was very deathly ill. Oh, wow. Okay. So I went to the dope house immediately and fixed that problem. And mm -hmm. then uh, I went to work the following day and I took my work van and I pawned every single item in it for $100 a piece. Whoa. About $40,000 worth of tools for about $800, $900. Wow. <clears throat> That wasn't enough. My boss is so kind-hearted, you know, he's like, yeah, I'll just pay it. I said, no, don't pay it, I'll just do it again. And this time I'll break into someone's house. I, you know, don't pay it. Right, so you wanted your boss to press charges, but he did not want to. He didn't. Wow. So <laughs> I went to his brother-in-law and did the same type of work and um, got a job briefly, and I did the same thing. And I knew he would do it, like I just knew. That he was, he would be the one. That he's not that kind of guy, you know. Yeah. Stick it to you if you stab him in the back. You know, sure. So. so he did, and he talked to his to his brother-in-law, and he got him to get on board. So they hit me with two two felony charges of uh, you know death by unlawful taking. Uh, the total at, at first was probably right around seventy thousand, something like that. It got lowered as the trial went on, but mm -hmm. that's what I was stuck with. So at the very start of all this, what I thought I would spend a couple years in jail for, it was a 20 year sentence. It's one it started out as. Okay. And then it got dropped to a 10, then okay. it got dropped to a five. And I was like, you know what, five years is probably about what I need. You know, I had lost connection with everybody anyway. Mm -hmm. You know, nobody came to see me uh, when I was in those dark days. So yeah, there I was. And, uh, I went and knocked on a jailhouse door and told them what I did, mm -hmm. and they wouldn't take me in. What? Yeah. I'm like, hey, I got a warrant for my arrest, and they would not arrest me. So I was like, well... That doesn't happen, though. <clears throat> I said, well, let's just go get tore up. And that lasted for nine months. After I did that, I was on Lexington's Most Wanted and, you know, Crime Stoppers and all this other stuff, and I'm right. I'm working every day. I'm, and you tried to present yourself to be, mm -hmm. and they wouldn't take you. Wouldn't take me. No, it's not like they didn't know where I was. You know, I mean, you knew exactly where I was. But one day I finally got pulled over, and the the guy, <laughs> and you know, when I made the choice to go to jail, I wanted to go. But when they finally caught up with me, I was like, No, nah, I gotta run. <laughs> I'm not oh no to way! Go to jail. <laughs> so the guy comes up, super nice cop. You know, he's like, Hey. I pulled you over for a seatbelt, but I'm suspecting that uh, um, there's something else going on, you know. And sure. I said, well, here's my name. And then he ran my name, and he came over to the PA, and he said, you know, Nathan, don't run, you know. Mm -hmm. There's nowhere to go. Just don't run. Yeah. And, and I called my mom, and I said, hey, I'm thinking about running. And I would have. And she was like, Nate, just end it. Mm -hmm. Just get this over with, you know. Mm-hmm. And I just sat down on the curb and smoked, and I went to jail. And I stayed there for 14 months. 14 months. Got out and uh, did real well. What was the uh, initial uh, couple days like for you without... Because you're going cold turkey. Well, the first... I was in the methadone clinic the whole time prior to going to jail. So the day before I went to jail, I, of course, went to my clinic and so the first three days weren't bad okay it was like very minimum you know um, withdrawals at all through that but around the fourth fifth sixth day it started coming on like like a hurricane and okay. convulsions peeing on myself oh wow um you know using number two on myself and sure. i was on a top bunk oh no <laughs> so the guy below me was like this uh jewish guy oh, and he no. prayed and everything every day and he just got so the worst end of that deal. Oh but, man! So after the, after that happened, they locked me down in like this medical pod, okay. uh, one man cell, and I got to stay in there and go through that. It, it didn't really start getting any less intense until about the twenty fourth day. 
and then it started going down and getting a little better and a little better every day you know and then by the 31 first day I was able to hold my head up for five minutes at a time instead of 30 seconds at a time oh my gosh wow <laughs> and then I went to the kitchen and and I guess about the first week or whatever, everybody's walking over to me, patting me on the back, man. You, you've had a rough one, ain't you? You know. Oh. <laughs> so I went to jail. I was uh, 100 and probably 19 pounds, and when I got into the kitchen, I was about a uh, 95 pounds. Wow. And I'm 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 five ten. Uh -huh. You know, my normal weight's like 150. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so I was a. Uh, Pretty amazing. Yeah. Guy, you know, <laughs> my mugshot, I can look at it now and it just makes me want to throw up. You know, it's just yeah, terrible. But I get out 11 days after I'm out, I come across my wife now. Mm. And uh, I didn't have any intention on getting in a relationship. I just wanted to focus on myself and it just happened. You know, sure. like as soon as I seen her, I, I, I just. I fell in love with her and we started meshing and we started chilling and then from that 11th day on I, I haven't spent a day away from her you know wow we haven't been apart since and uh, you know after we had gotten married um, my daughter came along and and the time period is fuzzy and my, my wife would probably be pretty mad at me about it but I don't really technically remember when it started but I I had gotten into a business with my brother and we decided to hire an old friend who was also my wife's sister's husband, mm -hmm. which was my long-term childhood friend. Okay. Who was an addict still, using, oh. swore up and down that he was straightened up, mm -hmm. comes to work for us and a week into it I see that he's not straight you know and the wheels start turning and my, my wife and I are fighting over something or another and I'm stressed out over money and mm -hmm. I found myself behind this drug again wow after that detox of 14 months in jail again again so you know you mentioned that you had uh, you know 10 or 15 attempts mm -hmm. and so you know I I don't know too many people who get it in one attempt. Um, so it's something you definitely have to have to not give up on. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like a lifetime thing. You know, even after you stop using the actual drug, your mind doesn't run properly. It mm -hmm. changes the way you think. It changes the way you feel. Mm -hmm. You know, you even lose stuff that are small, like the feeling you used to get on Christmas Day when you woke up and you see your presence. You don't have that no more down to the feelings that you have during sex or the feelings that you have towards your children. I mean, it just takes forever for those to rebuild and sure. it just takes everything from you. Yeah. Not just material stuff, you know. Oh, absolutely. So we've gone all this time without Amy saying a word. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you met through your sister Yes. Yes. And your sister's boyfriend in particular. Right. So, you know, I, it's always, when we do, uh, and it's always a uh, crucial part of the therapy process to talk about how you met. So, um, was it love at first sight? Um, actually, we, when we first met, I was very young. I was, well, we're 14 years apart anyways, okay. but I was like extra little. And because my sister has been with her husband for like 15 years now, mm -hmm. so he was around as I was growing up. Ah, okay. Every now and then, you know, and ever since I was, you know how little girls do, they have this little sure. crush on older, you know, <laughs> that was me. I had a crush on Nathan, you know, and so, but years went by and we didn't see each other. And then I was hanging out at my sister's house and we picked him up. Mm. And I, I was just, you know, smitten again. Yeah. <laughs> My little flirtatious, you know, sure. cute crush was there, and we just, and there it was. We have been together ever since. Wow. Okay. So he was familiar to you through a good bit of your life. Yeah. Then. 
That's that's pretty awesome. I mean, I didn't know him, know him. You know, I knew of him, and I knew the kind of stuff he was into. Okay. But I didn't know anything about him. I didn't know, like, his personality or who he was. Right. So, your sister was a, used drugs, and her yes. boyfriend was an addict. Yes. You know, I, I, have a, I haven't proven this theory out, but um, you off, I often see with couples in particular that there's something familiar i think it's unconscious hmm. when couples get together really? so oh yeah 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 uh, it's always intriguing to me whether you know to use an example um uh, someone who grew up in an abusive home so often end up finding people who abuse. who abuse those kind of things and i think wow. it's totally unconscious yeah i've heard that um and i I know there's probably got to be a really good theory behind it, but um, so so from that standpoint, on you know on a subconscious level, there's some comfort with it, and so um, so from that standpoint, it also makes it even more difficult to break some of these kind of cycles, whether it's abuse abuser victim or or whatever the or abuser abuser um, it just depends. Well, we're up against uh, another commercial break. Actually, one minute insight. Um, and after this break, uh, we'll be back with more of how Amy and Nathan uh, got together and are fighting addiction together. We'll be right back. see how they resolve conflict and what kind of tools and weapons they're using against each other to make things better or worse. But two things I'm looking for in particular, and I call them metaphors and mantras. When couples get to that point where they are really just shouting back and forth at each other, what they truly think or how they feel about their position in the relationship comes out. So you hear things like, I'm right, or you never believe me, or you're just trying to control me. And so I don't want you to analyze your partner's mantras and metaphors. I want you to analyze your own. And when you get to that point and that's the thing you hear in your head and you're saying it, that means something in your relationship. And we are back. Uh, you listen to Paradigm Insights into Relationships in You. And before Woman and Insight, we were uh, just getting to a point where Amy and Nathan met, and uh, you know I was kind of I don't have a I don't have a, a, a data for this, but um, I would suspect that your familiarity with your sister's drug use and her boyfriend's drug use breeded some type of comfort um, in this relationship. So you are not a drug user have never been a drug user you watched it i assume if your sister's older so um what um how did that influence your view on drug use seeing your sister uh, use drugs for quite a bit of your life well as far back as i can remember because my sister is around nathan's age so she's older than me too um as far back as I can remember, she was using drugs, but I really didn't become like a parent of it and really know what it was to use drugs mm -hmm. continuously like that and to really be addicted until I met Nathan. Okay. Like, I, I mean, my sister's drug use was, uh, it was like, oh yeah, she's doing drugs, cool her like not mine. You yeah. know, it wasn't, it didn't, because didn't, we never been close anyway, so it didn't really. Okay horribly bug me or and nobody really talked about it you know my parents are naive to it all so they don't 
it just wasn't talked about. So until I really got with Nathan, I never really fully understood what it meant to be yeah. addicted to a drug. Yeah, because, you know, from my perspective, I, um, I applaud the team effort to work through it. But some of the things I've seen from a therapy standpoint, not necessarily even with um, um, oxycodone or other opioids, but even with alcohol, the other person that doesn't have the addiction often has the attitude of just stop or why can't you get over this or you're just not trying hard enough. And a lot of those approaches are counterproductive to helping the person deal with it and get over it. So that's exactly what I felt until oh. that's exactly what I felt until we started coming here to therapy. Okay. Like it wasn't until I was just so angry mm. about it all. Like when he relapsed, I was so angry and hurt, and I didn't know didn't I didn't know how to handle it except for just stop. You know, yeah. I didn't just walk away, leave it alone. You know, I didn't. And then we come here and we do different, you know, uh, empathy exercises. And <laughs> yes, so, so my favorites. <laughs> so <laughs> that's what really made me like understand what it must be like to really have something's hooks in you that mm -hmm. tightly to not right. be able to do anything but that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a very um, it's very difficult to put yourself in the other person's shoes when you don't have that vice, so to speak, um, and it's not easy to. I mean, I, I I don't know what the data would say about this, but very few people can stop things cold turkey. You usually need some other mechanism or some other support structure to help you stop. So. Um, so whose idea was it to come to marriage therapy on top of the uh, Suboxone or the treatment center? The treatment were you approach? in? You were in the clinic when we started, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah so it was a. Uh, it was talked about, and we were going to split up. And um, when you say split up, like it your was, marriage? Yeah, yeah it was. Oh, divorce. okay. You know, she was kind of like a. Um, it's either this or nothing type situation you either stop or um, we're done you know mm -hmm. well of course it's not that easy no so the idea was to go and get treatment through the suboxone facility that I was going to uh, to taper off at, you know at a, at a fast rate is what I wanted initially but um, that doesn't work either because you don't have the tools that you need mentally to deal with your triggers in everyday life so uh, that's the path that we're on now and you know it's coming into unfamiliar territory with the whole thing so you mentioned triggers what were some of your triggers my main trigger was anger anger and I got angry a lot okay so so then something would happen you would get angry while angry you would feel the urge to use mm -hmm. okay and the Suboxone Clinic, although it was like helping, it was helping him a lot, but seeing as how I don't know, you know, I don't understand anything that he's going through, I'm still dealing with the, I don't trust you anymore, mm -hmm. you know, you're lying to me, everything that comes out of your mouth is a lie, mm -hmm. I don't know how to handle it, I don't know how to, so I did, I, I don't even remember what I, oh, I went through his phone, oh. and, um, he caught me. He was asleep and I took it and I went in the other room and I started going through his phone and he came in there and he caught me going through his phone and that was like, we started screaming at each other and yelling at each other and he was going to leave me because I didn't trust him and I was going to leave him because you know I didn't trust you, right. you know? And that was it. We decided to come therapy. Okay. That so that, that sounds like a, uh, I would call, uh, it's an arousal cycle, meaning it's feeding on and making things worse. Um, some might call it a crazy cycle where one bad thing feeds another, feeds another, feeds another, and then next thing you know. So your cycle of mistrust and you want to be trusted just makes you angry and then, yeah. Yeah. So that's a bad... Um, so then how far into your marriage was your relapse? That's what I'm saying. I'm fuzzy on it. I really... Oh. My daughter was like two months old, maybe. 
Yeah, okay. because I had surgery when she was... I had surgery three months after she was born, and you started, you relapsed, like, right around there. Mm-hmm. Because it wasn't until, and then I found out, I had surgery in July, and I caught you August. I started, when, I started, uh, like I said, that business with my brother, and I know it had, that's when it happened, for sure, 100%. I yeah. don't remember, just don't remember the date. Some of it was, so some of it for you was stress, some of it was also being around someone you had hung around for years who was still using well that just made it easy made it easy you know I, I think it probably would have happened regardless but that just made it easy a lot a lot easier to to get back into it when you have a familiar friend sure so I guess misery loves company well you know it's hard to be back in the same environment um, I mean whether whatever the behavior change you're trying to accomplish it is I mean that's one of the trickier things I mean going to prison you hear it I mean you went to prison with a plan <laughs> but <laughs> which I think is quite clever and smart but um, you know you hear so many people who go to prison so to speak come back to where they were before and it's real easy just to jump back into your old life and so I mean that's one of the one of the things you really have to do is change your environment if I would have had the tools that I have now, and you know, I probably learned these along the way, but I didn't apply them mm-hmm. like I do now. And yep. uh, you know, if I if I would have done some aftercare when I got out and some reentry stuff, yeah, I probably would have been okay. You know, mm-hmm. I would I would have been able to stay the course uh, a lot easier. But it might not have got out of like it did. Sure. I'm not saying that I probably wouldn't have relapsed because that probably would have happened, but I might not have stayed on it long enough to become physically dependent again. Yep. And might have been able to get help a little sooner and a little differently. So you've you've taken a team approach to addiction recovery. So outside of therapy, what what does this team approach really look like in your day to day lives? Honesty. Okay. You know, you got to be honest with each other. Accountability. You got to know where, especially she has to know where I'm at, you know, because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm the one that straight off and did drugs. And, uh, you know, you got to have a structure and you got to have um, kind of like a routine, you know. Because when things change, and uh, I'm not saying that you can't have new things happen in your life, but... For a long while, you need some structured lifestyle behind you. Yeah. To get that that normal feeling back, you know. Right. right. Not to be bored, sitting around, you know, t- twiddling your thumbs or whatever. Yeah. You know, I I worked with another couple couple years ago, and uh, um, the husband was the one that had an alcohol dependency, and there are aspects of his. Um, of his addiction that helped the relationship work. And from the outside looking in, you'd say, it just doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. So um, is there anything about this addiction that has helped your relationship work? Yes, actually, on my end anyway, there is, because I have trust issues anyways oh. that I struggle with terribly. Okay. So selfishly, the fact that he has relapsed and I get to not trust him helps me a ton (laughs) and it's helped me like it's helped me to learn to trust more that's the 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 watching where he goes and the you know figuring out who he's talking to and he has to answer my phone calls and it's helped me to trust him more and i wouldn't have done that if that wasn't there if he wouldn't have relapsed i would probably still be on my own vicious cycle of not not trusting anybody that's pretty fascinating you know, this couple I worked with, um, the, the husband, uh, he was a fun guy when he was drinking. Um, <laughs> life of the party, easy to, you know, laid back, easy to get along with. Um, but uh, sober, he was a different person. He was serious. Uh, I mean, dead serious. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, life is no joke. We, you know, and so the other part of this, maybe we'll jump into this when we get back uh, from this break, is that um, with this couple that I worked with before, uh, it wasn't a team effort. 
and he desperately wanted his wife to be part of the recovery, and she didn't want any parts of it. So, uh, so we'll talk more about the team approach when we come back after this break. Don't touch that dial. We'll be right back with more Paradigm, insights into relationships and you with Toby Jenkins. This is Toby Jenkins, host of Paradigm, insights into relationships and you. One of the biggest stresses that we encounter is money. Money issues strain our family life, create stress in our relationships, and can provoke serious anxiety and depression, and many don't know where to turn to get relief. That's where The Darius Norman Show comes in. The Darius Norman Show airs daily on WTTA-FM 101.2 from 1 to 2 p.m. Darius Norman is a certified credit and financial counselor and author of Rewriting Financial Rules. It's his objective to empower others with educational tools and services to assist them in taking control of their financial and credit issues. Tune in to The Darius Norman Show on WTTA-FM 101.2, and you can follow him on Twitter at The Darius Norman Show. And we're back. You're listening to Paradigm Insights into Relationships and You. My guests today are Amy and Nate, and you know we're talking about the team approach for for how you are approaching addiction. And so, you know, when we get married, we have certain expectations of how things will work. And so, um, you know, Amy, from your perspective, I suspect that um, you didn't sign up for this when you got married. <laughs> um, or did you? I mean, I knew that it was a possibility that he could relapse. I knew that he was an addict, and then I met him again when he got out of jail, and he was clean when he got out of jail, so that's the Nathan I knew, knew, mm-hmm. you know, and got to know, really, and that's the Nathan I married, but I always, I know, as well as anybody, that there's that always, every day, it's a struggle, you know, so, sure. so I knew that there was a possibility that he could, but I never really, because I didn't understand, I never really knew how big of a possibility it was, mm-hmm. or what all it would entail, what came with it I had no clue no what clue. I signed up for right at all yeah and you know uh, and go referencing the, the other couple I was talking about um, and this just doesn't apply to addiction this applies to I mean this I think this is one of the more wonderful things about marriage either way is that life changes I mean you can you you guarantee things are going to change and from a from a therapy standpoint, where I see people get really stuck is that when they can't accept the fact that things are going to change, and that they need to change with them. So, um, and this happens all along the spectrum. Um, so, so now this is something that you uh, accept, and you have committed to. Um, but if you would have fat, if you would go back, you never. I mean, you might have thought this would have happened, but maybe not. But you're willing to do whatever it takes at this point, moving forward. Yes, I never. When we first got married, I, like I said, I knew it was a possibility, but it was almost like I signed a contract I didn't read. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's like I was signing my life away and didn't know it. You know? Sure. So I knew he could relapse, but I didn't know what it meant. Till death do us part. Right. <laughs> for better, for worse. So, so, yep. And then now, now it's just, you know, I'm in it to win it. And it's going to be what it's going to be. And I know that. And now that we've been through it once, I know if it were to happen again, I know what to expect. I know I have better tools to handle it. I have... So if it were to happen again, I would like to say that I would be able to handle it the way I should. Okay. So for, for, for the listeners out there that may be in relationship with someone who's dealing with recovery, what's, what's uh, one or two things that 
people should know in trying to help or support someone they love going through this? Don't try to pretend like you know what they're going through if mm. you haven't been through it. Don't for a second think that you know because you don't yeah. in any way, shape, or form. You might think, oh yeah, I know, you know, yeah, I know what it means to be addicted. No, you don't unless you are. Mm. So don't pretend like you do. That makes them worse, you know. Yeah. So um, listen, be a good listener. Listen to what they tell you. Don't let them tell you how they're feeling and brush it off like it doesn't mean anything or like, oh, it's just you're having a bad day. Or listen, really listen to really, what. Yeah. Listen with more than your ears is what I hear you say. Yep, and then um, kind of you, you got to support them. You have to be in their corner. Yeah. You just have to. Just be ready, you know, to go through something like this with an addict. Um, you kind of got to know if they're serious or not. Because, uh, like I said, they'll, they'll play it against you and turn around and leave your, your house and use. You mm. know, it's just... It's just the way that it works. So like coming at it like, do this or else, that's not gonna work. Yeah. You know, they'll just go somewhere else. They'll use you up until you get fed up and then they'll go somewhere else. You know, so with a loved one, you just have to ride it out. You know, mm -hmm. you just have, have to be there with them. I'm not saying you have to give them anything. I'm not saying sure. you gotta line their pockets with dollars or anything like that, but you know, you make sure they got the food in the belly that they need, maybe a, a pillow to lay their head on, and that's about all you can do. Yeah, yeah. You know, I interviewed um, Alex Ellswick. Um, he's, uh, he's opened up Voices of Hope, and one of the aspects of his story that still is mind-boggling to me as a parent is that at his, at his lowest, um, he called his dad needing to be picked up. He was in Ohio and his dad said sorry I can't do that and a thousand thoughts went through my mind when he, when he said that and being having children of my own I don't know if I could do that I'd like to think I could it was exactly what Alex needed at that point because he had hit rock bottom that's rough. I can't imagine, I mean, now having, you know, a daughter, I can't imagine what it would be like to go through that. But having a sister whom I wasn't really close to, but I, she just went through rehab not too long ago, and I just let her stay with me to try to help her stay sober. And the first, like, week, I was fooled. Mm. I was fooled terribly. Like I was excited to Even have now. a sister. Mm. Yeah, I was. that's what I'm saying. I was excited to have a sister and... Uh, I really thought that, you know, she was going to be different this mm -hmm. time, and I, I was kind of trying to be positive. I know it's possible. You know, Nathan's been sober now for two years, so, you know, I know it's for real. You can mm -hmm. do it if you want to, and she was acting like she wanted to, and then she didn't, and so it was just like... So you're pretty disappointed. Yep, so, and I mean, I hate to say it, but, like, if you're with an addict or if someone that you love is an addict... And, you know, they say that they're going to get sober, like, eight times out of ten. They're not, you know. Mm -hmm. But you got to, there. there's going to be that one time where they really might want to. So yep. you just got to hope for the best but expect the worst. Yeah. And they'll get you another addict to see if the addict that you're trying to help is still hot. Because they'll tell you real quick. <laughs> really? Former addict. <laughs> yeah, he's out right now. <laughs> so, uh, you know, going back to you know this concept of you didn't sign up for this. So you too recognize that this is a lifelong endeavor. Yep. Yeah, and you're okay with that. Yeah. I I wasn't for the longest time. Really? Yeah, I, I never wanted to accept that this was some lifetime thing that I had to go through, you know, and acknowledge for the rest of my life. You know, it's like, um, yeah, I got I to gotta cut on my leg and it might leave a scar, but then again, it might not. Mm -hmm. You know, kind of sort of thing. So am I going to have to live with this for the rest of my life? Just might not have to, you know. And I used to hold on to that, but you do have to, you know, because that urge is always there. Yeah. Always at the back of your mind. Yeah, that sounds like a healthy place to be, um, acknowledging that 
it could be out there. I mean, because that's kind of when we tend to fall asleep at the wheel, so mm -hmm. to speak. Not just with addiction, but a lot of things when we think, oh, it won't happen to me again. Um, because then you go through all of the, you know, beating yourself up and the shame and the guilt of, uh, of failing. Uh, and that's the way it's often viewed, but it's not really a failure. Yeah. That's another thing I would tell somebody who is going through it with a loved one or whatever. Don't shame them. That makes them feel so much worse and you have mm -hmm. no clue at the time what you're doing to them. You know, you're just mad and you're trying to make them feel, you know, ashamed, which they should be, you know, but don't, you can't do it. You, you yeah. can't make them feel that way. It makes it worse and it, you know, it just makes them want to use more. Yeah. So, don't do that. Yeah, you know, uh, you know, one of the things we've talked about uh, is even, I'm really big on labels, so even using that word addict, at what point is it helpful to stop using that word? He still gets mad at me when I, like, if, if there's a situation that I'm worried about, you know, I remind him, Nathan, you're an addict, you know, this might mm -hmm. not be smart for you to do, or whatever, he still gets mad at me for calling him an addict, like it's a bad word. And I I get it, but it is what it is. You know, it is an I'm addiction. I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. Okay? So we still got so more work to do. So if I'm not okay be a junkie, I mean, I might just, I might just lose it. You know, I'm, not, I'm not there yet. It makes me mad to hear somebody say that word still to this day. You know, somebody, yeah. it just, just, they're going, just because, it just sounds so nasty. It's a powerful junkie, word. Like, it's like it just blows my mind. Even I've seen someone today say it. They said, oh, "Those look like some junky shorts you got on to one of the guys that was working." Oh. What? How could you say something like that? You know, it just blows me away. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of the difference between being a victim or survivor uh, of pick your pick your abuse. Um, survivor means has a different meaning than victim, right? It's just something that happens. Yeah. Cool deal. We're up against another commercial break. Uh, you're listening to Paradigm Insights into Relationships in You, and we are talking about a marriage and family approach to uh, addiction and recovery. We'll be right back after this break. And Listen to Mail is next. You've got mail. You've got mail. You've got mail. Today's Listener Mail comes from Amy. Amy writes, have you ever had clients that you don't like? If so, how do you work with them? From a therapy standpoint, I've actually had, in the years I've done therapy, I've had one or two clients that from the initial call, I thought this is not gonna work well at all. And each time, I really enjoyed working with them. <laughs> and so, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so in general, so ethically, you have, as a therapist, you have to make a decision whether ethically your dislike for the, your client gets in a way of you uh, providing quality uh, therapy. Like cause you to be biased type of? Well, like if someone annoys you and, and pisses you off to the point where you can no longer help them then you're doing harm, which ethically we're not supposed oh. to do. So ethically, if I were at that point, the ethical thing to do would be to refer that client to someone else that would like to work with them, which would involve probably confronting or having a conversation about why <laughs> I can't work with you. With therapy, as well as other uh, healthcare professionals, I'd say even more so with therapy, the relationship matters. And so and a lot rides on the relationship you have with your client. So having a working relationship is really important. And so there are a couple of different ways to slice it and dice it. And when things have come up in therapy um, from a behavior standpoint that the other person, that the client has done, then confronting it, like you talked about, can be really instructive as a way of helping them understand how they are experienced from someone else's perspective. That's kind of a long-winded answer to uh, a short question. So. And we are back. You're listening to Paradigm Insights into Relationships and You. My guests today 
are Amy and Nathan. And um, before the break, we were talking about the team approach to addiction. And so, you know, right right now, your your approach to recovery consists of the clinic mm -hmm. and the Suboxone treatments yes. and doing this. And so, there's a there's an end date on the Suboxone treatment where you're 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 being dosed down gradually. Correct. Right. Correct. So, like, so how far out is that for you? Uh, probably within the next six months or so. It's typically a two-year span. So I'd say probably within, like I said, six to eight months. But when that day comes, you know, that's the scary part. That's the unknown. Mm -hmm. I don't. I don't know how I'm going to feel after being on this medication for two. I know it's going to be kind of like, you know, gradually step down. But I've never, I've never given any thought really, and it kind of scares me for my wife uh, to have to deal with those feelings as well. Mm -hmm. You because know, she's went through a whole different list of problems that that I didn't even understand. So now, why can't she stay on Suboxone? Uh, it's expensive, okay. and uh, you know you're not supposed to. It's a short-term thing. You know, it's it's designed to be. It, to wean you off and to help you not be dependent on something teach you how to be have how to have a normal life and and not have to deal with the withdrawals as bad and, mm -hmm. and it really does work but what happens next so is so the way you're being dosed down there should not be any withdrawal at the end well the way I understand it between segments like um, there's so many receptors or whatever that's filled in your brain between two pills or th one and three quarters pill or whatever. Mm -hmm. Every quarter that you go down, there's less and less receptors that are bonded sure. or blocked or whatever it is that it does. And somewhere between the half and zero is, a, is one of the worst ones. Okay. So, you know, you might not feel any withdrawal throughout the whole ordeal. And then when it gets down to the half, you might have some kind of discomfort or whatever, or you might have some big discomfort between three and a quarter to, you know, it just matters how the person is, I guess, but. So is it withdrawal and cravings? I don't know. We don't know. Don't they placebo you too when they get? I've, I've requested to be fake. placebo uh, um, Medicated. Okay. So to see if it's a mind thing or not. Sure, yeah. You know, so I'm not going to know from the point to where I get down below a half of a pill of if I'm still on it or if I'm not. Wow, that makes a lot of sense. <clears throat> so hopefully, you know, I go in there and I say, hey, I'm starting to feel withdrawals. And they're like, you've been off this. You ain't been on nothing for four months. So that's the goal for me anyway. Right. You know, I can get all the tools I want, but at the end of the day, I'm still scared to death that, you know, um, am I going to be strong enough to say no to these feelings that I felt? I don't. You know, I would like to believe I am. Yeah. And and tell you 100%, I'm going to tough it out. And I know I got a better chance with my wife. Absolutely. But it's a scary thought. You know? Yeah. Well, Amy and Nathan, this has been great. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And if we've just helped one person, one family, parent, one cousin or friend to support someone who's going through addiction and have some insight in how they can help their loved ones, then this time will be well worth it. You are listening to Paradigm Insights into Relationships and in You. If you have a therapy question, you can email me at toby at paradigmradioshow.com. You can also follow my One Minute Insights on my YouTube channel, as well as Twitter at ParadigmRadioShow.com. And you can find archived episodes at my, uh, wherever you get podcasts or at the uh, Paradigm Radio Show website, which is ParadigmRadioShow.com. Thank you for tuning into Paradigm. 
insights into relationships and you with Toby Jenkins. Join us again.